Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really it's aimed at novices and strugglers. A lot of people have tried to read the Bible or have never tried, and so I'm really my, my top goal is to help them get into the scriptures. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're in the book of Revelation, which is a challenging book, but a great book, understandable and applicable. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you to understand the Bible. Please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Two weeks ago, we started our transition from hell to heaven, uh, the end of Revelation 20 into Revelation 21 and 22. And then last week, we uh, talked at great length about Revelation 21, 1 through 5. In this week's show, we continue in Revelation 21, focusing on heaven uh, as its depiction as a city, the new Jerusalem. Lord, help us understand heaven better. Help us see it more clearly. Help us understand what a good and great God you are, that it would make a difference in our everyday life. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 21 today, focusing on heaven and its depiction as a city, the new Jerusalem. So we'll start in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The first thing to note is that the bride of verse 9 is equivalent to the city of verse 10, and they're said to be coming down from God. So it's interesting that the two are equivalent, the bride and the city. And so we have the use of symbolic language here, which is revisited from chapter 21, verse 2, and now extended uh, in great detail. It might seem strange to equate a bride and a city, but as Beasley Murray puts it, the bride and the city symbolize fundamentally the same thing, the people of God in holy fellowship with the Lord. To say then that the saints rule with Christ in the kingdom and that the bride's city comes down from heaven to earth for the kingdom is the same reality. Or as Lowry puts it, both symbols express a core idea about intimacy between God and his people. Of course, that intimacy is not always fully available or always available in marriage or in city slash community, but they're expressing it in their ideal here, right? That the ideal marriage, the ideal community would have the sort of intimacy described here. A small detail starts off verse 9, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, there's an angel messenger who is linked to the seven bowl-wielding angels of chapter 16 as a set, and then there's an individual angel who uh, of those seven who leads things off in chapter 17. Is it the same angel or not? Uh, if not, that would apply to the diversity of gifts and opportunities that angels have, and by application, what we have as well. If it is the same angel, 
I like what William Barclay says here. John must have meant something by making the same angel the bearer of such different messages. It may be that John wishes us to see that the servant of God does not choose his task, but must do whatever God sends him to do and must speak whatever word God gives him to speak. If it's the same angel, it's interesting and noteworthy that the angel pronounces judgment on Babylon in chapter 17, and here is describing the new Jerusalem in chapter 21. The comparison is actually more direct than that. If you look back to chapter 17, verse 1, the angel says there, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. And here in chapter 21, verse 9, it's come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So it's identical language and a deliberate parallel. Beasley Murray says here, The rule of the harlot city under Antichrist will be followed by the establishment of the bride city under God's Christ. Another interesting detail is that we're told in chapter 21, verse 10, that the vision is given from a mountain, which implies security and transcendence. Chapter 17, verse 3's vision for Babylon comes from the wilderness. For John's audience then and now, the most important thing to note, though, is that we have that choice as well. We have a choice of being in chapter 17 or being in chapter 21. In life on earth today, we have to make a choice. Are we going to be signing up for Babylon or are we signing up to be active in God's kingdom? From there, verses 11 through 21 describe the city in great detail. So we'll focus first on its beauty. That's verses 11 and then 18 through 21. Verse 11 says, It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Then down to verses 18 through 21, the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Verse 11 is actually the the summary verse for this, and it includes the key hope, which is its beauty, that it shone with the glory of God. Verses 18 through 21, that the wall, the city, the foundations, the gates, and the streets are made of gold and precious jewels. And then verse 21 gives us the gates of pearl, or as it's often reduced, the pearly gates. Interesting here, right? I mean, can you imagine a pearl or an oyster of that size? Barclay says this is standing in for a symbol of unimaginable beauty and unaccessible riches. In the list of items here, this is the only item that is created organically. So this is sometimes taken by commentators to be figurative for Christ or any affliction that can be turned to benefit as glory and beauty. Later in verse 21, we're given the other building material of the city that's very popular, the streets of gold. And of course, the kicker here is that gold will be so common, it'll be used for pavement. One application here is that material things, ours anyway, are unimportant, relatively speaking. There's an old joke about this. Uh, A man brings a bag of gold with him to heaven, and uh, he gets to the gate, and Peter won't let him in. With a bag, he says, you know, you, you can't bring it with you. you. You heard that on earth. 
But the man is insistent and keeps pestering Peter. And finally, Peter calls up to God and and tells him about this man who wants to bring a bag of pavement into heaven. And he can't understand why it's such a big deal. So uh, what we think is gold in heaven is actually just pavement. This is one of a handful of times that we know this vision is a vision because it's complicated and hard to interpret. You know, on the one hand, we're individuals walking on the streets of gold. On the other hand, we are the bride, thus we are the city. So we're both the city and we're walking in the city. So uh, don't take the vision too literally. Streets also imply a path or way of life. So the application there would be to a godly character and godly behavior. It's interesting in the life of Jesus. You look at John 21, 19 and a passage in John 20, Jesus materializes out of nowhere. Maybe we would use the term teleported. And perhaps that's the way it'll be for us as well. But it's interesting that streets and gates are pictured in heaven, which implies standard modes of transportation. Three times in the passage, we're told that the materials are clear. The city is clear, verse 11, as Jasper. Verse 18, uh, gold is as pure as glass. And here in verse 21, the streets are uh, glass that is uh, transparent, the gold at least, all of it emphasizing its transparency. Walverd says here, this indicates that the city is designed to transmit the glory of God in the form of light without hindrance. I think we can also see here the absence of mystery and the unknown. Uh, We saw this earlier with the sea being gone back earlier in chapter 21. 19 and 20 has the precious stones as the foundation, obviously communicating the value of the city. It's interesting that the language here is was rather than was like a stone. So John seems certain here in the vision. And there are 12 of the precious stones, the beginning of what we might call a 12 fest. Uh, Lots of 12s in this passage. And the number 12 biblically and in terms of numerology is figurative for completeness. Eight of these were in the high priest breastplate, and that's described in Ezekiel 28 and also Exodus 28, verses 17 through 21. Two more details here. It's interesting that verse 18, the wall, verse 19's first level, the wall's foundation, and verse 11 are all described as clear jasper. And we saw this actually back in chapter 4, verse 3, where jasper and carnelian were used to depict God on his throne. So the city bears the likeness of God and his glory. And then finally, the gold, precious stones, and pearl are all mentioned in Genesis 2, verses 11 and 12 in the Garden of Eden. So we have here a book ending from eternity to eternity of those three building materials. It's interesting as well that silver is absent in the New Jerusalem and in Eden. Uh, silver often symbolizes redemption, and of course, redemption is not no longer necessary in the New Jerusalem, and it was not necessary in the beginning at Eden. Okay, the exterior of the city is described in verses 12 through 14. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 12 starts with a great high wall, reminiscent of Isaiah 26.1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. 
Of course, this symbolizes total security and protection. William Barclay says, Faith is the wall behind which the saints of God are secure against the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what is true to some extent today, uh, as much as we let it be, will be fully the case in heaven. But why are there walls at all? Again, our hand-waving answer would be to say that John is trying to describe the indescribable. He's trying to describe intimacy, city, garden. So don't take the city references too literally. But I think there's some other uh, things here we know from our own experience. It's often a physical reminder of the safety that is available to us. Think about kids in a playground. There's been some experimental work done when they have a playground with or without a fence, and the fence makes them more comfortable and free. Second, it's necessary to provide the measurements of a city. Uh, You can't have a city without a limit. It'd be like trying to describe a short-necked giraffe. Well, you're not really describing a giraffe anymore. The option is an incomprehensible eternity. Humans are finite. In a sense, we're defined by our limits, even in Genesis 3 and before Adam and Eve were limited, right? If Adam is working on an apple tree, then he's not working on the orange tree. And so we're finite, and so cities have to be pictured as finite as well. The measurements also imply physical proximity and closeness, which again takes us back to community. So again, infinity is not very helpful for describing community in that way. And remember that the walls are transparent. In fact, the walls are the first thing mentioned here. And uh, Watchman Nee notes that similarly, separation is the first principle of Christian living. This also finds some parallels in the cities of refuge in Joshua 20 and elsewhere that Christ is our refuge and ultimately heaven will be our city of refuge. I like Zechariah 2.5 here. God says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be its glory within. Verses 12 and 13 also have the 12 gates with an angel at each of the 12 gates, as if guarding it, as we saw in Genesis 3.24 when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. But here we're told in Revelation 21.25 that the gates are open. So in a way, the angels are impressive greeters. Verse 12 tells us that Israel's 12 tribes are written on the gates as a monument. So this represents Old Testament believers, particularly as they usher in the New Testament. We know that salvation comes from the Jews, John 4.22. And of course, ultimately through Jesus, we have the same thing. John 10.9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The gate locations, north, south, east, and west, signify easy and equal access. Luke 13, 29, Jesus says people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Again, this finds parallels with the cities of refuge, which were to have entries on every side. Matthew Henry says, from all quarters of the earth, there shall be some who shall get safely to heaven. There is as free entrance from one part of the world as from the other. It's said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To John's audience, gates would represent defense, although none is needed here. Community, it was a place of gathering, a, a place to set up meetings, and government. We'll talk more about that later. But think about the stories of Ruth and Lot that they take place at the city gates. And then verse 14 has a second monument, the 12 foundations with the name of the 12 apostles. This is the figurative foundation of the church on whom the church was built. Uh, 
Ephesians 2.20, 1 Timothy 3.15, and Hebrews 11.10 all use similar language. And of course, Christ is the cornerstone. We also read that in Ephesians 2.20, as well as 1 Peter 2, verses 6 and 7. Now, this can be read as 12 layers of foundation or 12 stones combined into one foundation. In any case, along with verse 12 and the 12 gates as the Old Testament tribes, we have here a, com- a final and complete blending of the images of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's also cool as a picture that all Old Testament saints have to pass over the foundation and all New Testament saints have to pass through the gates. This is also indicative that the old earth's history will still be relevant and powerful in the new earth and heaven. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Revelation 21, verses 9 through 21 so far, and we're describing the city, uh, the new Jerusalem, the bride. And we've covered the de- a lot of the details so far, uh, its beauty, the building materials, and its exterior. We now turn to its size and dimensions, and that takes us to chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. First of all, very similar to Ezekiel 40 and 41. So if you're looking for other relevant passages to skim or read, that'd be Uh, one to do here. Uh, Also, it's interesting, the last verse of Ezekiel, chapter 48, verse 35, mentions that the city is 3,500 cubits square, which is much smaller than what we're dealing with here. Verse 15 tells us that the angel's measuring it with a gold rod, so that's pretty cool. Uh, It's the second time we've seen a reference to measuring. In uh, Revelation 11, we saw the same thing, but there was used a measure to signify protection. In the middle of verse 16, we're told that it's 12,000 stadia. Some interesting numbers there. 12,000 is made up of 3 times 4 times 10 to the cube. And all of those have uh, interesting uh, biblical numerological relevance. That's about 1,400 miles square. First of all, this is big enough to encompass the world as John knew it. It may just be figurative for plenty of room and mansions for plenty of people. If it's literal, we're looking at about 2 million square miles. If we had 10 billion people there, it would be 5,000 people per square mile and 5,500 square feet per person. And this is assuming one-story, two-dimensional approach to this city, which would be big but not too big. Remember the desire for community that we've talked about. So a city that was, you know, much, much smaller or much, much larger would send a very different signal. Verse 16 uh, describes it as a square. And then later in 16, uh, we're told that it's as wide, high, and long. Those dimensions are all the same, which takes you to most likely a cube, but possibly a pyramid. Both were seen as symbols of perfection in that time. And of course, a cube would be reminiscent of the Holy of Holies and how it was built. Verse 17 has the walls, that they are 144 cubits thick 
or tall possible. Now this is 216 feet. Note that 144 is 12 times 12. So we're back to some uh, interesting numbers in terms of uh, figurative for perfect protection. And uh, also they're limited. And so if you think about walls, often they obscure uh, the view. And so they're pictured as small, uh, you know, large enough to protect if that were even necessary, but uh, short enough to not obscure the glory of the city or the view of the sky. Now, on the other hand, we're also told that all this stuff is transparent. So if this is literal, if it's literally transparent, you wouldn't be able to see even where the walls begin and the city ends or the roads for that matter. And so, um, yeah, again, we're, we're stretching things a bit here uh, through this vision. Don't take them super literally. Uh, again, all of this is amazing to us, but think of how this would have sounded to John's audience, right? We can almost picture something like this, but for John's audience, this, all of this would have just been freakish. So Revelation 21 gives us the physical attributes. What else do we know from Scripture about the interior of the new Jerusalem? What will city life be like in the new heavens and earth? Three general principles here before we get to some particulars. The first is back to the idea of redemption and continuity, which are key principles in the Bible um, in general with redemption. And continuity was a principle we talked about in introducing the new heavens and earth, right? We talked about last week that if it's called the new earth, then it's got to look like to some extent the old earth, or you, you wouldn't call it that. Randy Alcorn says the earth-shaking fall divided history, but it didn't end history. The resurrection of all things will divide earth's history, but it won't end it. So there's a sense of uh, continuity uh, here, and also the sense of God continuing his redemptive efforts. Second principle, I think we often think of the worship in heaven, but as Alcorn asks, will we always be on our faces at Christ's feet worshiping him? No, because scripture says we'll be doing many other things. Richard Baucom says the new Jerusalem is given by God and so comes down from heaven, but this does not mean humanity makes no contribution to it. It consummates human history and culture insofar as these have been dedicated to God, while excluding the distortions of history and culture in opposition to God that Babylon represents. It comes from God in the sense that all good things come from God. In a way, this does take us back to worship. Uh, as I'm fond of saying, worship is both an event and a lifestyle, as many other things in the Christian life, right? Prayer is an event, prayer is a lifestyle. But worship is something we do, but it's also, it should suffuse everything that we do. It's, it's a thing you do, uh, you know, on, say, a Sunday morning, but it's also something that should be a part of every bit of your life. And so I think heaven will be the same, right? Worship might be an event, but worship will certainly be a lifestyle in heaven. Third, we're told that heaven is a city 15 times in Revelation. We see three references to that in Hebrews as well. But it's also described as a country. We see that in Luke 19.12 and Hebrews 11.16. Here in Revelation 21 and 22, we're given both city architecture and references to nations. We were told that our citizenship is in heaven, so we have that country metaphor going even on earth, Philippians 3.20. There are other cities, Luke 19, verses 17 through 19. And there's references we'll have to talk about later that seem strange to kings from other nations here in Revelation, chapter 21, verses 14 and 16. So what do these references mean if more figurative? A city implies common culture, right? People that have things in common. And a country implies government. 
So we have more to say about both of these, right? That, that heaven will involve a common culture and some form of government, uh, and thus the comparison to city and country would both be applicable. Back to continuity and redemption, I think we can uh, think about all the pros and none of the cons of our cities and countries. When cities and countries do things really well, uh, that may be a sense of what heaven will be like. Of course, that doesn't happen nearly as often as we would hope. So God's got a lot of redeeming to do there. So what will we do specifically in the New Jerusalem? I want to start with work. That's the first thing. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 15, and chapter 22, verse 3, both talk about serving in, in, uh, in heaven. Work really is from the beginning. You go back to Genesis 1, 26 and 28 with the creation mandate, the dominion mandate uh, to work. If you look at Genesis 2.15, Adam is put in the garden to work it. So work is a pre-fall, pre-curse institution. It's something that we're built to do. John 4.34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5, 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So we're built to work. It's actually the first institution in the Bible. A lot of times people talk about marriage as if it's the first institution. But before Eve is described, late in chapter 2, God gives Adam work to do. Now, work doesn't necessarily mean your, your job or career. It just means the, the sort of uh, vocational things that are accomplished. And that can, can certainly include career, but it's not exclusively about that. What is our work? What are we here for? What are we here to do? We have purpose, and uh, that is done through our work. It's interesting that the Hebrew term for work, avodah, can also be translated as worship and service. And so in a Christian and J- Jewish worldview, work, worship, and service are all interrelated. We cannot Uh, distinguish them strongly. Now, this redeemed work is already and not yet. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, right? He worked to make us, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're already called to do good works. It's not as if God just saves us, puts us on a shelf, says, stay out of trouble, I'll see you in heaven. We're supposed to be working now, doing great things for God. He wants great things from us and for us. And so that redeemed work is an already, but of course it's a not yet as well, that work will also be in heaven. We see references to this as well, Matthew 25 and Luke 19, with the parable of the talents and the work that is done there. Speculating a bit here, it's likely that we continue in our professions, if that's possible. Uh, For example, I don't think uh, that there'll be anyone practicing dentistry in heaven. Hopefully our teeth uh, will will be perfect there. So as long as it's feasible, uh, it's likely that there'll be a continuity in profession, just like there's continuity in other things uh, from, from earth to the new earth, and presumably the opportunity to learn new things, uh, to do more things seems to be maybe a focus on trade and business still. Chapter 21, verse 24 uh, talks about uh, perhaps tribute being paid by the kings, but it also may be alluding to trade. Maybe it will be in kind or barter rather than money being involved. Maybe it'll simply be 
all about giving to each other and there won't really be any trades per se. But maybe it's just because I'm an economist, but I think there may be mutually beneficial trading in heaven as well. I think to argue against that possibility diminishes the potential for redeemed economic activity in the here and now. It looks like there may be property rights in heaven. It's implied by the ownership of dwelling places. Uh, again, a great passage to read for today is Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. In verse 21, it says, They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Or think about Jesus' teaching in Luke 16, verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And then verse 9, Christ finishes that parable with, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That implies that we have places that we control uh, in in heaven, so to speak, as weird as that seems. Uh, John 14, verses 2 and 3, probably the most famous passage in this regard. Uh, Jesus says, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So a place is prepared for you. And that may refer to... Uh, kind of a generic place for all of us, but it mentions rooms and places. So it sure seems like we're talking about specific areas that uh, would be, you know, under our control, so to speak. There are also references to treasures, crowns. Revelation 2.17 had the white stone with a new name that belonged to us, of an inheritance. Revelation 21.7, Colossians 3.24. Alcorn says here, heaven isn't a socialist utopia in which private ownership is evil. Materialism, greed, envy, and selfishness are sins. Ownership is not. What's ours is ultimately God's, but that's as true here and now as in heaven. The early Christians generously shared their possessions, but this never negated private ownership. So again, a a bit of this is speculative, but I think the cool thing of of this discussion, first of all, is that we are going to work Uh, Second, that uh, it is possible that we still have economic activity in heaven. In any case, we should work to redeem it while we're on earth. All right, time for another break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Questions and comments to me are welcome on my Facebook. See you in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 21, 9 through 21 today, describing the heavenly city of Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, also described as a bride. And we talked about the details of the city, how it's constructed, and now we've moved into what we will do there. Just before the break, we talked about work and even the potential for trade and business. Second point, second category here is that we will rule in heaven. Uh, We saw this in chapter 5, verse 10, and chapter 22, verse 5. We'll talk about the word reign for us. I think Revelation 11, 15 is interesting here. It says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So that speaks to the merger that will occur at the end of time, which we've been describing. But Christ's reign is apparently connected to our reigning from the other two references. 
in the Luke 19 version of the parable of the talents, we usually read Matthew 25, which talks about resources and stewardship. Luke 19 talks about it in terms of cities that we will govern. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So apparently we're built to judge and to reign. Think about the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And presumably part of that includes reigning. Very similar to the uh, fifth kingdom of Daniel 7, which is Christ and again connects to us. Daniel 7 verse 18 says, But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. And presumably that also includes reigning. And one of the funny things here is that, of course, this lines up with Jewish expectations of the first Messiah, that it would be political. Of course, political of a certain type, and that's still not going to occur. Uh, but it will have this aspect of reigning and ruling and politics that the Jews were expecting uh, and still expecting from the Messiah. We also talked about work as pre-fall and curse. Well, government was pre-fall and curse as well. God governed and then he commanded Adam to enhance dominion. And that's, again, ruling. Randy Alcorn says the vanquishing of sin doesn't mean the end of Christ's rule. It means the end of his contested rule and the beginning of his eternally uncontested rule when he will delegate earthly rule to his co-heirs. Now, sadly, both work and government get nasty reputations uh, given how they play out on earth, but both of them are pre-fall institutions. Both of them are part of what we'll have fully redeemed when we're in heaven. This is so hard for us to see given how messed up typical human government is on earth today. Randy Alcorn says, God, ruler of the universe, is living proof that ruling can and should be good. And so in the meantime, right, we, we strive for an ideal, we work for justice among human rulers, but we look forward to the government of God and our participation in it to rule and to reign appropriately and effectively. Now, all of this discussion of ruling and reigning is probably making you uncomfortable. I think it does most of us. Randy Alcorn says, the idea that mankind will rule the earth, govern cities, and reign forever sounds presumptuous and self-important. I would agree if it was our idea to reign over the universe, but it was not our idea, it was God's. I've already alluded to how this uncomfortableness plays out in our reading of the Gospels, you know, the parable of the talents. We always read Matthew 25, we rarely read Luke 19, and I think we just find that somewhere between troubling and uh, offensive or bothersome. We can't really figure out how reigning, us reigning, can possibly fit into God's plan. I really like what Dallas Willard says here in The Divine Conspiracy, a great book, by the way. He says, Reign is no doubt wording that is a little too grand for the contemporary mind, but in the heart of the divine conspiracy, it just means to be free and powerful in the creation and governance of what is good. The intention of God is that we should each become the kind of person whom he can set free in his universe, empowered to do what we want to do. Just as we desire and intend this so far as possible for our children and others we love, so God desires and intends it for his children. But character, the inner directedness of the self, must develop to the point where that is possible. 
God wants great things for us and from us. I think we often sell ourselves short, not us in particular, but us through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, through Christ living in us, through the Word of God and what we know to be the right things to do, through the empowerment of the Spirit, the instruction and counsel of the Spirit. God wants great things from us, and that includes reigning in His kingdom, so to speak, on earth in the already and in the not yet. Finally, let me join Alcorn in getting even more speculative here. Uh, Isaiah 9, 7, in some translations, says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Again, we can read that more figuratively. Uh, it's possible that there's more in store, uh, that there's previously or present uncharted territory to us that may increase through God's creative efforts. It may cre- free up the creator to create more stuff. Another intriguing possibility here is the morning star in Revelation 2.28 uh, can be taken as a reference to Venus. So maybe there'll be rejuvenated planets. Maybe that's where governance will be, that more things will be created, more creation will be created that will require governance. So that's highly speculative, but uh, intriguing to think of, you know, God's going to do more than we can ask or imagine, so why not uh, more creation? Why not uh, that's that, uh, those sorts of things and our involvement in those things. All right, the third thing to talk about is creating and culture. So first thing to say is that God redeems. We've talked about this before. Culture and technology will not regress. Right, we're not going back to a world before Genesis 4, for example, and all the things that are created in verses 20 through 22 there. There's not going to be a literal reinvention of the wheel. Alcorn notes, if the creation itself will be resurrected, could this also include some of the work of our hands? Will heaven contain the cumulative benefits of human knowledge, art, and technology? Products of faithful lives will endure. God's fire will not destroy the whole earth. It will destroy all that displeases him. Think back to the big passage in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 12 through 15 about the works that we build on the foundations of Christ being Uh, gold, silver, or precious stones versus wood, hay, and stubble. Uh, If the wood, if the gold, silver, and precious stones are surviving, what does that include? It could could well include culture and technology. Revelation 14, 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Now, what does that mean? It could just mean judgment, right? But I think we look at the other passage we available to us. We think about the principle of continuity, and it's likely the culture and technology will follow. A second consideration is that our activity on earth is focused on creation and culture. So how much more so would it be in heaven? Genesis 1.26, we're built in the image of a creator God, which means we also are built to create. So we're called to work. Genesis 2, we're called to create in Genesis 1. As Alcorn notes, if that's true now, how much more will it be true when there's nothing in us to dishonor him? It's a craftsman who's the first in Scripture to be filled with the Spirit in Exodus 31, 1 through 6 and Exodus 35, 35. And he was instructed to create art and to make apprentices to teach other people how to do it. You can see the exquisite and beautiful temple details in Exodus 25 through 40. And you might also remember that Jesus was a carpenter. So why wouldn't we expect this to continue in heaven? So what kind of culture will be in heaven? I think we can count on music being there. 
uh, it's on earth and in the intermediate heaven we've seen a, a lot of said doxologies in revelation but there were some sung as well we also had the trumpets in revelation 8 we have harps in revelation 14 2 and 3 we have harps and singing in revelation 15 verses 2 and 3 uh, had 288 musicians named in the temple in First Chron- Chronicles 25. And then a slew of verses. Let me read a few of them here. Isaiah 38, 20, The Lord will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. Psalm 150, the final psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Mark 14, 26 tells us that the disciples and Jesus wrapped up with a hymn at the end of the Last Supper. Ephesians 5, 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. James 5, 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. A few applications here of interest. Uh, One is to wrestle with, will there be great earthly music in heaven? Will the the best of earth make it to heaven? Is it redeemed or will will it need to be fully redeemed in heaven? Uh, it's pretty cool to think about the greatest of earth's music if it's done pure of heart pure of doctrine pure of faith and belief maybe it's already being sung there with application to our current listening habits alcorn says which of your favorite songs will survive the fire if there's a specific reason why some won't why listen to them now and to be kind of careful not to push that too far but it's an interesting principle and then back to our discussion of the new body uh, in last week's uh, episode uh, my my pastor in Texas and a, a buddy of his used to be on the front row and they would be waiting for their glorified voices. They weren't very good singers, but uh, they were in the meantime going to belt it out. It was inspirational to hear these guys that couldn't sing a lick uh, belting it out to the glory and the praise of God. So don't let your limited singing ability now uh, keep you from praising now as well. In addition to music, there'll be dance, many, many references to that uh, in our time on earth. There's dancing at the prodigal son's party in Luke 15, 25, and a number of Old Testament references. Alcorn says it's God, not Satan, who made us to dance. If you believe that Satan invented dancing or that dancing is inherently sinful, you give Satan too much credit and God too little. There'll be other arts there, right? Movies, drama, literature, libraries. We are people of the word of God, so why wouldn't there be writing in heaven? And all this will be with racial and ethnic diversity, right? We have Revelation 5, 9, and 10, Revelation 7, 9, and 10, uh, distinguishing and flavoring cultural attributes will be part of that. And all of this is within a broad and robust sense of unity. Alcorn says here, peace on earth will be accomplished not by the abolition of our differences, but by a unifying loyalty to the king, a loyalty that transcends differences and is enriched by them. As such, we probably keep our own language. Maybe we learn other languages for grins, or maybe we know other languages automatically, as we saw at Pentecost, uh, or as we see with even technology that allows us to uh, hear languages translated. Either way, all of this reverses and resolves Babylon and the lack of unity and the improper unity sought there. 
All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We would really appreciate it. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We've been in Revelation 21, 9 through 21 this week. We spent the first two segments working through that passage, talking about the details of the city in terms of its construction. Uh, The last segment and this final segment, we're talking about what city life will be like, how we will work, how we will rule, the culture and creation that we'll do. So two last things to cover here. The first is, uh, I've got in my notes, is eat, drink, and be merry. There will be eating and drinking in heaven. Uh, We have the tree of life in paradise, Revelation 2-7. We have uh, the wedding feast, Revelation 19-9. And the tree of life reappears in heaven, Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Great verse on this is Isaiah 25-6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. All provided by God himself. Luke 14, Christ tells a parable that includes invitations to get a taste of his banquet. Luke 29, 29, and 30. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there you get the judging, reigning, and the feasting. Eating and drinking are inherently relational, so it wouldn't be a shocker for that reason alone to find these things in heaven. Many spiritual events in the Bible are built around feast and festivals. Food is both functional and enjoyable. And who created our taste buds but God? As I mentioned last week, probably vegetarian. Uh, There's no more death from last week, Revelation 21.4. Likely to return to a pre-flood diet, Genesis 9.3. Apparently the animals will be vegetarians from Isaiah 65.25. There are some other references, like Isaiah 25.6 I just read mentions meat. And 47, 9 and 10 of Ezekiel talks about fishermen. So if you interpret that literally... Uh, then you do have to try and resolve what happens with meat. Um, Maybe meat substitutes? I don't know. Um, Should we eat meat now? I mean, if you go back to Alcorn's comments on music, uh, you might want to wrestle with that. But uh, at least for now, it's legitimate. It's allowed. But what, what will happen in heaven? For today, the question is what to do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So that's kind of your summary verse there. In any case, what will be there will be better than what we have now. We know that. Imagine coffee and alcohol without potential for addiction. Imagine no allergies, weight problems, or eating disorders. Second category is uh, be merry or play. Uh, So I think that could even include sports. Uh, A lot of references to athletics and scripture. Uh, Wouldn't be shocking to see that continue in heaven. Will there be thrills without risk? I think the answer is yes there. We know from Genesis 131 that very good can exist without the bad. Uh, I'm guessing that Adam and Eve got sore and sweated. We can probably still skin our knees. Revelation 22.2 talks about the healing of nations from the tree of life. Um, Riskless roller coasters are still exciting, so I think we can still have thrills without the risk. And just bottom line, who knows what God has in store here? Alcorn speculates about skydiving without parachutes and scuba diving without an air tank. And the most important part here are the relationships in the community. 
Um, I think when you look at this, people, I think, think of heaven as just God. But loving God and loving neighbors are the two great commandments. And Genesis 2.18, God says it's not good even when it's just God. So just God alone is not the way it's meant to be. It's, it's God and people. So we're going to have community and relationships in heaven. Alcorn says here, since meaningful human companionship turned God's assessment of not good into a declaration of very good on the first earth, we shouldn't expect him to change his mind on the new earth. To take pleasure in another image bearer does not offend God. It pleases him. Was Jesus distracted from God by spending time with people on earth? Second, there will be friends and family in heaven, hopefully for you, but transcended by the family of God. Luke 8, 19 through 21, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So it's transcended even on earth, and we can expect that to continue in heaven, that the family of God trumps uh biological and adoptive families on earth. Mark 10, 29 and 30, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. It doesn't look like there's marriage in heaven. Matthew twenty-two thirty. at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, we're not the same as angels, but he's saying there that um, we will be like the angels with respect to no marriage. If that's the case, it's interesting that we would be even closer to our former spouses uh, because we're going to be so close and able to love people so, so well. Uh, so even if we don't know our spouse as a spouse, uh, our ability to love them and others will be greatly enhanced in heaven. I think it's interesting to wrestle with this about marriage a little bit. Alcorn argues in light of that verse that there'll be no sex and no childbearing. But I think you could make an argument that those are essential to being, to being human. I think there's some other practical questions here as well. Will infertility be revisited in heaven? What about babies who are miscarried and children who have died early? How are those going to be redeemed in heaven, if not within family? And there are possible answers to this, but uh, one could also imagine it in something similar to our current ide- idealized family structures. Next, our individuals will be in relationship through ref- personality, which is continued and refined. Our personalities are an essential component of our personhood, Alcorn quotes C.S. Lewis, who says, How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors. How gloriously different are the saints. And that's not going to go away in heaven. Again, unity is not unanimity. It's amazing diversity and perfect unity that God will achieve in heaven and what he desires for us to have today. Some miscellaneous observations. We'll have clearer memories, greater consciousness, better jokes and stories. It'll feel like a good home with the familiarity, the relationships, the warmth, the pleasant memories. We'll have contact with people we've communicated with but never met. We'll meet Christians from history. And again, the principle of continuity. We will see Christians again someday in heaven. And uh, there'll be varying depths of relationship uh, as there 
is uh, on uh, on earth. Again, we're limited. We're not going to have the same relationship with everyone. That's part of what grows for all eternity in heaven. I like how Alcorn sums up this piece of heaven, that it's meaningful and pleasurable things with enjoyable people. I think that this helps us understand death as well, right? That when we die and most of our friends have gone ahead of us, we'll have more of those friends uh, there waiting for us. And beyond that, many new friends to make when we get to heaven. Okay, last topic is will we have rest there? Revelation fourteen thirteen that I already read says we'll get rest from our labors. Uh, the Greek word kopos and, and another Greek word maktos can be translated as toil or hard labor. So certainly there's rest from that. Hebrews 4 talks about a Sabbath rest. But as we know from Jesus's ministry, the Sabbath also includes acting in love towards those around us. So it doesn't mean laying in a hammock all the time. So there is a form of rest um, uh, in terms of work, uh, the ability to worship, fellowship, etc. Uh, It certainly doesn't mean hammock time, uh, but there is certainly a spiritual rest that's going to happen in heaven. Will we sleep? Hmm. Is it human to rest? Do we need rest to rejuvenate our bodies? Will that even be the case with our glorified bodies? Uh, There's not going to be darkness. Will night and day still exist? Uh, Are we going to be staying up all night? I guess is another way to think about this. Uh, Alcorn argues that we will sleep, uh, speculates on that, but he says, you know, sleep is a great pleasure. Uh, And on top of that, we will need it if we're continuing in our finite bodies and we'll enjoy it. So not sure on that one, but uh, interesting to think about. I guess to sum all this up, maybe think of a free Disneyland with excited kids and you have enough time to do everything. That's maybe the best way to think of heaven. It's work, not toil. It's rest, not burden. It's rule, not oppression. It's creative versus boring. It's solitude versus loneliness. It's fun, not debauchery. And so I hope you won't miss it. I hope you won't miss it for eternity, but I even hope that you won't miss it now as it's already available to some extent for the world. Don't miss it for the world. First John two fifteen through 17, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So go there now. Get increasingly comfortable in the goodness of God's kingdom. Don't wait for heaven. Get what you can now experience what you can in the goodness of God's grace and his rule today right now I don't know if you've heard the old song big house by audio adrenaline if not pull it up listen to it. it's pretty fun the chorus says come and go with me to my father's house it's a big big house with lots and lots of room a big big table with lots and lots of food a big big yard where we can play football a big big house it's my father's house we worship a good and great God with a big old house Make sure you're comfortable in the goodness of his kingdom. Make sure that your love and the grace you've experienced spills out to tell other people about our great and good God. Lord, help us to do that increasingly in the days to come. Remember, the podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Interact with me on Facebook, and we'll catch you next time on The Word Diet.